Hello, and welcome to IRI Growth Insights, featuring IRI thought leaders, industry partners, and guests. For more than 40 years, IRI has been known for its invaluable data, but these podcasts delve into the insights the data reveal to fuel market disruption and market growth for those in the CPG, retail, healthcare, and media markets. I'm your host, Joan Driggs, coming to you from IRI's corporate headquarters in Chicago. Good, good day from uh, Los Angeles, Boulder, and from the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. I'm Larry Levin, Executive Vice President of IRI and part of the Thought Leadership Team. I'm here today with a couple of very esteemed colleagues, uh, Jessica Lucas from BDSA and Aaron Morris from uh, Wild. It's a great honor to be here in a, in a fun podcast called um, Cannabis, The Route to Success. And it certainly is the route to success. I think a lot of people are always looking for pockets of growth, and that's why we call this Growth Insights. But there is a tre tremendous amount of growth opportunity available in the cannabis industry. And Jessica, who studies the cannabis industry on a regular basis, is going to talk a little bit about the global opportunities that are available. And then Aaron, who is uh, the CEO of Wild, is going to talk about what it's like to launch brands and be part of this amazing industry. Uh, the part of the industry that I am most most uh, at awe of, if you will, is the growth engine. And as I said before, we're all looking for growth. The projections that BDSA has put together suggest that the U.S. cannabis market by the middle of this decade will be $40 billion and $50 billion in total worldwide. You know, put some perspective around $40 billion, that's about the size of the U.S. OTC market today. These are big, big opportunities, and the opportunities will become even more prevalent as more states go legal and more and more uh, CBD products in particular go mainstream across retail. So I, on that note, you know, Jessica, I wanna welcome you. You have uh, been a great partner of mine. Um, I know you're an Indiana Hoosier by, uh, by, by degree anyway, but a very much a, a Colorado mom. And by being a Colorado mom, tell me a little bit about, tell our audience a little bit about what that means to be a Colorado mom. <laughs> you describe, what did you say? The way you describe being a Colorado mom. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting coming from uh, mainstream CPG and beverage alcohol most of my career and evolving into the wild world of cannabis um, almost four years ago now. I'll have my four year anniversary at BDSA um, in a couple of weeks. And Aaron can attest to this being in cannabis even longer than I have. Um, the industry, the market, the sophistication has evolved um, at a level that exceeds, I would even say, the growth of the industry over the last four years. It is a different industry, a different market than it was when I first started. Um, but as you make jokes about being a Colorado mom, um, you know, four years ago, I used to have to get on stage um, at beer conferences and consumer packaged good conferences. And the first thing I would say is, you know, I spend my day looking at data. Um, I am a mom, I have a master's degree, I have an MBA, and I consume cannabis. Because four years ago, we had to break that stigma. Um, the nice thing is we don't have to do that anymore. Um, it is kind of becoming more mainstream. It is accepted. Um, the stigmas have broken down. And a lot of that comes from brands like Wild, um, elevating what it means to be a responsible brand in this industry. And I'd like to say BDSA and IRI are part of that elevation, sophistication, and destigmatization too, as we've educated 
larger industries, financial services, CPG, beverage, alcohol, but also general consumers on, on what this means and why people are consuming what they're consuming and kind of how that's evolved in time. So um, one thing I did see there, uh, I don't know, you guys probably don't follow them, but I do because again, I am a mom. There's a like blogger influencer called Scary Mommy and they did a whole series recently. Um, I think Cure Leaf was part of that and a handful of others specifically talking about cannabis and consuming and, and, and doing that really responsibly and, and publicly, um, which is really nice to see because what gets me the most frustrated is that um, I'm from Indiana, so I like to call this out, but Indiana moms can talk about their kids going to bed and drinking a bottle of wine, um, but us in legal markets, there's still a stigma sometimes about being a mom and consuming cannabis, even within a state like Colorado. And so I think it's really important to stand up and kind of talk about the products we consume and, and why we consume and what we consume personally, um, as we also kind of talk about the industry and how it's growing and, and what it means to be part of this. You know, just one of the things that I've been so impressed with um, in the data that you've shared with me is the significant growth in acceptors and consumers. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, how you've seen that market change over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I, I'm sure we're going to ask Aaron some crazy questions of what's happened in his business over the last year. But I'll tell you, even in the past year, and Larry, I'm not even sure you've seen these new data points, first half of 2020 versus first half of 2021. Um, so through the pandemic, um, we could even say that there is a correlation there between the growth in the percent of the population consuming cannabis and what happened over the last year. Um, we've seen significant increases in the percent of adults consuming cannabis across the entire U.S. And really interesting, we've even seen that same level of increase in percent of population or adults consuming in the most mature markets. So our aggregate of fully adult use legal markets, uh, percent of the population consuming cannabis, percent of adults, sorry, has jumped from 36% to 43% in one year. Um, break that down, um, California, since Larry, you're sitting in California, um, in the past year went from 33% of adults consuming to 45%. Colorado from 41% to 47% of adults consuming cannabis. So I love to call out the fact that Oregon, Washington, California, and Colorado, four of the most mature legal cannabis markets globally, now have almost 50% of adults consuming cannabis. That is a really interesting number to think about if you're in beverage alcohol or tobacco or consumer packaged goods, you can't ignore that. And further, in the last year, people are consuming more frequently and more form factors. So um, within edibles specifically, um, speaking to kind of wild and, and the gummy setting, um, we see about 40% of edibles consumers across legal markets consuming at least daily now. So if your question is, oh, 50% of, of adults consuming cannabis, great, but maybe they're just consuming once over six months. The answer is no. A large percent of those people are consuming multiple times a day, every day. Yeah, and I, I will uh, jump on the bandwagon because I think you break down stereotypes. Um, it really crosses all generations and I'm you know, proud to admit, and I admitted this way before I met Aaron, that I'm a wild consumer. And, and Aaron, I want to welcome you to the show. It's a, a truly an honor to have an opportunity to talk to you, even if you are an Oregon Beaver and you beat the Wisconsin Badgers in the Rose Bowl a couple of years ago. Bucky Badger and I don't hold anything against you, but, but welcome to our show. And if you could tell the audience a little bit about how you laid the background for Wild, and I know you have different 
streams of business, but it'd be really interesting to, for the audience to understand a little bit about your background and how Wild came to be. Gotcha. Well, for the record, I'm an Oregon duck, not a beaver. Just got to throw that out there. Um, That's Oregon State beaver. My, my mistake. Um, yeah, I mean, my background is basically um, I wanted to be an academic. I triple majored in college, and my whole plan was to get into being a professor and into academia. And long story short, I left that and uh, got kind of disenfranchised with that. But um, everyone asked me where my background is, and my background is at 23, uh, we just started to start a distillery uh, in vodka. We started to start a vodka brand with $50,000, which is the most saturated beverage business in alcohol. Um, but yeah, our background, my background is literally, um, I knew nothing. Um, and that's kind of what makes us dangerous. But honestly, at 23, we started a distillery. That distillery has grown into five brands. Um, then obviously when Oregon voted to go recreation, uh, I was like, well, we have to jump on this. And so then we did it all over again, took $150,000 in seed, started a THC business. That's wild. Um, and then long story short in the, the future there, about two years later, we decided to start a traditional CPG branch in our health and wellness category and launched wild CBD. But, uh, the background is academics. Uh, I don't really have any background. My background into cannabis is coming from the spirit side. And that's where I first cut my teeth. And I think that's where I learned a lot of what not to do. I think, uh, you know, it's been good that wild wasn't my first entrepreneurial business, just in the fact of, you know, you, you learn a lot, you make a lot of mistakes and, uh, I'm happy that I didn't do it in a complicated space like cannabis. So if you uh, put your professorial hat on pretending that you were in academia, what would be the two things you would tell somebody to do and two things you tell them not to do? Uh, I mean, two things to tell them to do. Um, I guess not to do, don't listen to anyone. Um, and you can't follow a trend in cannabis when the industry is brand new. Um, things to do, don't raise too much money and don't spend money you don't have. That's great, great advice. So you do have that opportunity to put Dr. Aaron in front of your, uh, your, your name down the road here. So it's good to... Uh, Good to have you. You know, just when we think about brands and certainly Wild has been at the forefront of a lot of what we've seen here in California and in Colorado, and it's definitely on a growth engine, but talk about some other brands that are winning today and how have they been successful going across state lines and having more of a, um, uh, you know, a traditional way to have distribution beyond one particular state. Yeah, um, and I'm going to probably answer a little bit and then might flip a couple of questions over to you, Aaron. So, um, you know, outlining brands that have been successful shifting either across categories or form factors within cannabis. So, you know, edibles to inhalables or even within edibles, thinking about a chocolate to tablet or gummy to beverage transition. Um, there's not a lot of really clear success stories. Um, there are definitely some, but I'll say there tend to be quite a bit more failures than successes. And so as you look at the brands and the play, and um, just to, to kind of back up a little bit, and again, Aaron, I'll have you talk a little bit more about setting up a business across state lines, but really important to remind the audience here who doesn't understand cannabis regulations is that um, you can't grow and produce a product in one state and move it to another state. So all of a sudden scale is very difficult as you think about the total US going from, you know, West Coast all the way over to Massachusetts and, and other states as you think about the expansion of, of legalization across the US. 
So I really would call out three key strategies here that we've seen across brands and players in terms of expanding across markets. Um, one is do it yourself, um, build the capacity and the capabilities market by market um, and enter on your own. Um, the second one is finding uh, licensed partners in every state and trusting that they're gonna build your business, your brand and your products the same way you have in whatever state you've dominated. Um, there's quite a few that we could call it here who have used licensed partners to expand rapidly into, into new markets. I think all of those brands would tell you their success stories state by state and also really critical failures state by state in trusting or kind of franchising or licensing your brand across the US. Um, and the last one I'll call out to me is like multi-state operators, M&A activity or partnership, um, going in, um, buying a brand from a market and bringing it across all the other markets they're in. Um, we're seeing more and more of that. Um, so maybe Aaron, you should jump in there and talk about how Wild has done this because Wild is a success story. Um, Wild was the number one brand in Oregon, moved into California, number one brand within edibles in California, moving into Colorado and taking market share. So I think you guys have a really good track record of kind of entering markets and doing it in the right way to be very successful. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, right, um, there's a couple camps in, I would say, that uh, the cannabis industry, right? There, um, five years ago, I got laughed at because I had no plans on going vertical integrated. And people said, if you don't control the supply chain, and I was like, but brands are going to win this game and we don't have the money and we're going to be focused. So we are, and then there's the model as Jessica explained of licensing or doing it yourself. So wild followed the model of setting up in every state and doing it ourselves. We self-manufacture and we self-distribute in every state. Um, and that's how we've expanded. Um, I can get into, well, I won't say anything about what other people do, but um, what we do essentially is first to market, right? I know that there's the CPG, we're not first to market rather. Um, there's the CPG belief that you have to be first to market, gobble up market share, fight it later, buy your market share. Wild very much goes against the opposite of that, right? So my opinion is wild, we wanna control our destiny, the people behind wild, the story behind wild and everything that we do, we set up a market, we will set up a very small operation in a state that we enter. And then we kind of scale that, I call it planting a seed. Um, and I think the core here to why wild does this, is Wild started with 150K and we haven't taken money on since. So we don't have the financial backing that many of our competitors do and everything we've done is just through internally generated capital. Um, so we launched a state, we took the approach of, well, we can't be first to market, so let's do it right. So doing it right in a complicated landscape like cannabis, to me was controlling all aspects of the business and making sure that every time you interacted with the brand, you bought the brand, a consumer experience, it was controlled by wild and kind of our ethos on what we we're trying to accomplish. Um, and I mean, that's, that's sure. Now that we're large and large quote unquote, big, big for ingestibles, of course, we're expanding rapidly into other markets and we'll take first to market. Um, but really for us, it was controlling our own destiny and staying focused, right? We don't process our own concentrates. We don't own grows. We have no interest in getting to retail. We are an ingestibles only company. And our focus has been just laser focused on what's in front of us. Um, and that's really, honestly, we don't even pay attention to what other people do. Um, we never have, uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I, I think one of the questions our audience will probably have is even though you don't act like a typical CPG company, how do you track and understand who are the triers of your product? Who are the repeaters of your product? How do you come down and, and build a relationship with new consumers, much like a CPG company would, 
uh, would typically do? I mean, it's real marketing, right? I think that if you talk to uh, younger entrepreneurs in particular, um, it's one customer at a time. Uh, we built our distillery business through farmer's markets, right? So it's one customer at a time. I've worked a thousand farmer's markets. I have interacted with 10,000 customers on the liquor side, one customer at a time. And then you have to build an authentic authentic brand, right? That's what a consumer wants in today's world. And what's the, when you don't have a marketing department and you have $0 on marketing spend and $0 on PR, what are you going to lean on? You're going to lean on word of mouth. How do you accomplish word of mouth? You bring something that's authentic and real and there's actual people behind it. People can tell their story. They can tell their founder story, but people just want to know who is behind the brand, not who started the brand. They just want to know the people behind the brand and that when they're interacting with something, it's, there's not a lot of trust anymore in today's world with um, a consumer to a brand. They want to see more than just the fancy shiny toy in front of them and whatever poster and brand, you get my point, whatever marketing flair that can be presented. Uh, so what we try to do is we try to get as many customers in front of the wild folks as possible. COVID obviously put a hamper on that, but I mean, that is how we have built all of our brands, just guerrilla marketing, but not guerrilla marketing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one, thing, one thing to add there, Larry, is again, just to educate, um, Cannabis is not an industry that you could pump $20, $50 million in to buy awareness and trial because of the regulations and the restrictions around what you can and cannot do on social media, publicly, TV, radio, billboards in terms of advertisements. So, you know, it's interesting to hear Aaron's response to that because um, positive or negative, that's not even an option right now for these brands and these businesses. Yeah, and I just had to smile when Aaron was talking about one customer at a time, because actually, even within big CPG, we've always taken the tact of one household at a time and getting to know that household. So it's still interesting to hear some of the parallels. You know, Jesse, you were talking a little bit about brands and their ability to go multi-state. Can you talk a little bit about retailers in that same vein? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely quite a fragmented um, marketplace here and every state looks very different. Um, Aaron knows this, obviously, and walking through and talking about setting up production state by state. But it's really important to remember right now in the U.S., every state is essentially like um, its own country. So if you think about being a global CPG company out of the U.S. and how you have to segment your business and think about strategy different as you go into Mexico versus Canada versus Italy, that's what cannabis companies have to do within the U.S., um, they have to think state by state because that's how um, the regulations are set up. Um, so as you think about retail, um, there are still a significant number of independent retail operators, especially in the most mature cannabis markets. Then you have single state multi-store operators. So kind of larger, I hate to use the word chains, but larger chains within a single market. And then you have your multi-state operators. Um, the multi-state operators are likely the ones that this audience hears the most about. You know, Cresco Labs, Green Thumb, True Leave, Air, Columbia Care, Holistic Industries, you go through, and those are the ones that get a lot of press and are publicly traded in Canada. Um, so there's a lot of different um, kind of setups right now with retail. Um, retail's different in terms of expanding market by market. Um, if you're paying attention at all, there is weekly, if not every other day, M&A activity happening on the retail side of this business. And Aaron brought up vertical integration. 
that is kind of owning the vertical chain. And a lot of these retailers kind of think about where's the opportunity within the entire vertical chain from cultivation to production, to brands, to retail. Um, so again, a lot of news constantly in terms of acquisition um, and using acquisition as an entry point into a new market. So you'll see acquisitions like truly acquiring harvest that expanded their footprint. Um, and that is a lot of what's happening right now, acquiring a business that's already set up into a market to enter that market or dominate that market. And um, just talk a little bit about how you see retailers pivoting in COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And Larry, you joined us on a lot of podcasts a year ago, or not even podcasts, webinars a year ago, talking about the impact of COVID. I don't think cannabis has been that different than the rest of the mainstream industries. Um, things have shifted. Um, allowances of what we could do has shifted, uh, just like <laughs> delivery beverage alcohol products coming from bars or in restaurants. Um, delivery opened up in markets, uh, pre-order and pickup opened up, which wasn't allowed previously within cannabis. We've seen consumer shift, especially where delivery is available. Um, we've seen consumer shift over and kind of stick with that, just like we've seen in mainstream CPG and beverage alcohol. So um, retailers having to adjust how they think about fulfillment methods being in-store, pre-order pickup, as well as uh, delivery and kind of what does that mean for their business and how do they stay relevant? And I think that's consistent with what uh, my partner, Joan Driggs, and I see regularly happening in the CPG space. Like you said, that you know incredible growth in online, both from a deliver to home and also click and collect. And even the other day, I was walking through LA and saw you know big signage in front of MedMen med all about uh, you know, store pickup or home delivery. So, you know, the retailers are doing a really good job of answering the need that consumers have across the whole of the CPG industry. Um, Aaron, just talk a little bit about, you know, how your product development uh, works. I know you talked a lot of, little bit about uh, getting into the new areas, but, you know, what is, what's sort of unique to your industry and how do you have to deal with certain state legislatures in order to get some of your products launched? Uh, I mean, as Jessica said, it's uh, it's launching a new country. I think the, the one thing that people don't quite realize too, also on like retail experience and customer experience is there's no standardization. So a lot of, I see two camps that fail most in cannabis. I see the people that come from the black market and believe that they can retain those same those same business practices. And then I also see very, I call it all the time, but you know, traditional top-down CPG companies or people from mainstream business. And they, that's where the business is headed, of course, but it's, they try to apply tactics 10, five, three years too early. Um, in terms of legislation and product development, the biggest key is to stay nimble, right? I think the biggest frustration when it comes to launching a new state, when it comes to product exactly, is the differences in the labs. And everyone wants to blame the cannabis lab, everyone wants to blame variants, but then they don't actually look at the legislation and a lot of these bureaucrats are dictating how labs are allowed to test cannabis products. And there's a lot of rules around the testing practices that they're mandated and it varies per state, right? And so I think a lot of people will develop their product to meet their one state. And really you actually have to hit like perfect homogeneity and you have to find a way to make pharmaceutical grade products. And that's the only way to navigate through every state. We see it all the time um, in terms of product development. I mean, the product development's come a long way. Um, it once started with me in a one burner kitchen, making moldy gummies and trying to figure it out on Reddit. Um, now we have an army of scientists that's constantly trying to innovate and make our products a higher quality. And I mean, if you saw our manufacturing processes five years ago to today, it's pretty much night and day. 
How many flavor varieties do you guys have? Uh, I mean, in terms of the gummies, which is our main mover, I mean, that's the one, the one product line that we've taken across state lines. We have eight. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, one thing I want to call out, Larry, because I'm guessing some of the audience who might hear this podcast probably read the New York Times article about big candy being mad at cannabis. And Aaron just rolled his eyes and so did I. And the reason I bring this up is because it's really important to hear what Aaron says when he talks about scientists and lab testing and having to be a pharmaceutical grade product. Don't let the ones that are living kind of in this illicit black market drive the perception of what this industry is. The examples they use in that article are not real brands and real businesses. And the people who are doing things right are. So going to stigmas and all of that, like it's not just about the consumer, it's also about the businesses. And and those businesses are not helping this industry because what is real here is what, you know, Wild's doing. Well, speaking about doing things the right way, and certainly a big part of our partnership, Jessica, is the understanding what's going on within mainstream retail for CBD. So if you could talk a little bit about um, companies that are expanding into mainstream retail with CBD, what are some of the key uh, opportunities and watch outs that you would recommend for where you sit? Obviously there are retailers and Aaron, I'll let you talk about your distribution. There are retailers, uh, both regional and national, um, grocery drug, mass, C store, who are taking on ingestible products, but your big box still aren't. So that is driving some of that decline and shift in timeline in terms of where we think the market will be. Um, I think what's fascinating, and Larry, you probably remember when we started talking about this two years ago publicly, there's really a couple of camps here. Who wins hemp drive CBD? Um, and you've got your mainstream CPG companies um, who are kind of tiptoeing around it and not jumping in. Um, your beverage alcohol companies in partnerships. So think about Constellation and Canopy with their CBD beverage, uh, Trust, which is Molson Core and Hexo now with their CBD beverage in Colorado. Um, there's some products that are coming out. Um, then you've got your CBD, your hemp derived CBD companies who that is what they focus on and they're not in THC. And then you have your THC players moving over. And most of the top brands within the THC dispensary channel are moving over. They understand this market. They understand the plant. They understand cannabinoids. Um, And for a while, I think a lot of people were ignoring them. Um, And what's interesting is to see kind of what is the success across the different paths of entry um, and ultimately, like, who's going to win? So I'll stop talking. I'll let uh, Aaron chime in as he thinks about the strategy. But it's really fascinating. I mean, it's a growing market. We're anticipating huge growth um, within hemp drive CBD and mainstream channels. Um, the points of distribution are still tough to get because, again, those largest retailers aren't yet carrying the products we know that sell the best, which are ingestible products. Yep. So, Aaron, talk a little bit about you know what you've done to uh, cross over the line here and come from dispensaries into mainstream. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I think we have to go all the way, not all the way back, but I mean, yeah, we, you have to set up in a completely different manufacturing distribution, different company. Obviously, you can't manufacture mainstream hemp-derived cannabinoid products, uh, CBD products in your THC license facilities. So there is another infrastructure play there. Um, but in terms of how, why we cross channels, um, I think, well, one, I think uh, the conversation has to evolve past CBD. I think it needs to be about hemp-derived cannabinoids. Um, we are pushing CBN. We are now launching a CBG, CBG product into the, the mainstream market. 
And so it's really more about the cannabinoids than it is about CBD. And I think that's where about 99% of the businesses that got into this have kind of lost their footing, right? I mean, everyone thought it was going to be the next gold rush, green rush, call it whatever you want. Um, I think I don't, Jessica would know the stats more than me, but it was like 50,000 ingestible brands within like three months, right? Everyone thought it was going to be like the next, like actually people, we make jokes around here. Everyone thought it was gonna be THC light, right? And so they thought this was their way to enter the cannabis market. And really we look at it as more of a health and wellness product, right? Um, we look at it more as an alternative and a health and wellness product. And I mean, the reason we got into it, obviously we thought the FDA was gonna give us more green light, but why we've been successful, um, we're the number one CBD actually, supplement gummy in natural grocery and conventional grocery and we're the number one cbd beverage in um, all grocery in the united states and so you know where the big players in the mainstream chains aren't actually involved um, i've seen a lot of you know the thc competitors start a cbd business but kind of just do an e-com or they had a co-packer make their product we jumped all in like we jumped all in manufacturing our fanciest building our canning line everything um, the struggles of it have been real. I can't tell you which one's harder. If I, if you made me choose, I might tell you that the hemp cannabinoid space is a harder, harder category to compete in and actually be successful in, um, because the distribution points, at least, you know, we have dispensaries, you enter a market for the THC side, you enter a state, you get your license, you have a list of retailers that are licensed to sell your products in can in can in, sorry, in CBD hemp cannabinoids in general, we've had to convince so many people to come across the line in particular with ingestibles, right? So we have really focused on natural grocery. We've really been focusing on more of the regional chains and uh, they're more focused on bringing these categories in before the big players, the bigger players uh, will get involved. And we've also been focused on specialty CBD shops and kind of just anyone who take the product, right? I think the strategy has largely become who's selling CBD ingestibles and that is what you have to do. And we have scaled a direct sales team, right? I think everyone is waiting for the distribution play and you can read headlines here and there. I won't say names, you'll read some headlines about us in the near future. Um, but really the way we've had success is we had to scale a direct team. And I don't know if it takes a rocket science to figure this out, but shipping beverages from Oregon to the East Coast isn't exactly on a direct model without distribution and fulfillment houses isn't exactly economically viable. Uh, we've been doing it. Um, it's a market share play. Uh, and then honestly, it's the other thing is it's there is all the bad actors, right? I think everyone got into CBD space. And it was just like, honestly, it was like going back in THC six years ago is people making gummies, they just spray, which means they just coat CBD on the outside of it. And so our biggest challenge has been at the beginning of this, everyone grabbed every anyone who's selling CBD ingestibles would grab every CBD ingestible, the first 10 that called them, right? And then they realized a lot of them don't sell, right? And so we've had to really do a lot of convincing and really like, it's a, it's, a, it's a long haul. It's a long haul of convincing people on your product quality, the reasons why they should pick up your product, the, the differentiation of your product versus the competitors. And we've been lucky enough to have that success, but it has been a brutal two-year climb. Uh, we have been super lucky enough that we're actually the only CBD brand that grew in grocery during COVID. Um, and it's really through just being nimble and flexible and not giving up. And really the other key is you have to do it yourself, right? Um, I can't tell you how many regional chains said no. And then we're like having 18 months of conversations with them and like, all right, we'll try you guys, right? You guys seem to actually have the viability. You have the FDA, 
Um, you have all of the standards that are in normal food manufacturing, pharmaceutical grade manufacturing, um, and you also have the credibility on all of your other businesses. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's brutal out there. I think it's going to be huge. I don't think, um, I think the headlines that we read two years ago, um, as Jessica is hinting at, were, you know, overhyped to say the least. Um, but that being said, I think it's going to be a functional category, especially in the health and wellness category. Um, I think you can look at all the functional products that are coming out outside of hemp derived cannabinoids and understand that hemp derived cannabinoids have their place, deserve their place. And they're all an alternative to a lot of people's um, needs and it's consumers want it. But um, I think the other myth is the whole CBD cure all thing. I think people have to let it go. Right. I think there are cannabinoids that have a lot of specific things specific, uh, I don't know, they have, they have more specific things that they're going after, right? Let's put it that way, right? But the whole like CBD cures everything um, has kind of put this industry in a backwards, it's put the industry 10 years back. So it's really fighting a lot of myths. It's fighting a structural issue with distribution points. Um, and it's fighting a lot of bad actors who just wanted to get rich quick. I think it's it's fascinating. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking back to some of the work that uh, Joan and I do together on new product pay setters and some products that took different routes to mainstream markets. One of them was BioFreeze that she and I talked a couple of years ago that started really in chiropractic offices and eventually went mainstream. Um, you know, my, my feeling is that, uh, you know, the CBD industry is a couple of years away from mass market, 30% plus distribution. And Joan and I will be talking about them as new product base setters. In fact, this year we had our very first hemp derived product being um, one of the, the top new product base setters. And so it's a slow, uh, a slow build, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of great learning that, that both uh, Aaron and Jessica have shared with our audience today. I want to thank you both for an, an exciting half an hour and you know, some great lessons learned about uh, really trying to do it yourself, finding your licensed partners and thinking about ways that you can cross states with, uh, uh, you know, with a brand. So on that note, Jess and Aaron, I really want to thank you. And I would invite you back to come and talk to us again in a few months. And as we continue to learn more about the industry and opportunities that are abound here for CPG. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.